Busking first saw English language publication back in the mid 19th century in Britain. It's a term that was possibly derived from the Spanish word buscar, which means to seek or to search for, but which also potentially evolved out of other words that shared a Latin root, such as the French buscare, to shift or to filch or to prowl, or the Italian buscare, which means about the same as the aforementioned French term. It's also possible that this word came to us via the Old English term for a traditional Greek boot, buskin, which was thick-soled and elevated and often worn by performers on stage. Figuratively, then, buskin perhaps came to be associated with the theatrical or performative, and eventually shared a derivation of its name with performers of all sorts rather than just dramatists. Whatever the case, Buskers, people who busk, who participate in busking, are people who perform in public and who usually travel around to do so, but not always. Buskers are also folks who live off what they make from the public, from spare change and the occasional dollar or pound, the even rarer ten or twenty, tossed into their hat or jar or open guitar case. Busking as a business model, though, and the way some of these performers earn a living, how they collect money after sharing their craft with the world, has been evolving these last few years. And while part of that evolution is the consequence of the mobile internet and social networks, each year some lucky few buskers will segue into full-time creative careers after a stranger with a smartphone shares their performance with the world to much acclaim, but there's another facet of this technological evolution that has influenced this slice of the creative industry almost as much as Instagram and YouTube, and almost certainly more broadly and directly, and that is the point-of-sale interface. Traditionally, buskers play music or recite poetry or dance and then pass around a hat or leave some kind of container out in the open for passers-by to leave them whatever they've got handy in terms of currency. But the world has shifted, and in a lot of cities around the world, fewer and fewer people are likely to have spare change or any kind of foldable currency on them at any given time. Many of us have shifted partially or entirely over to plastic debit and credit cards and newfangled, entirely digital means of purchasing things, things with NFC chips and magnetic stripes and ones and zeros. As a consequence, you're increasingly likely to see a sign perched next to that subway guitarist telling listeners where to send a Venmo-based contribution. You may see a PayPal address or a cash app handle in a more prominent position than the vase where they're collecting tangible currency. You might also see a little white square, a wireless card reader that connects to the performer's phone via Bluetooth, which allows them to accept payment via cards or other wireless transmission method like Android or Apple Pay. I'm personally on tour right now, popping around North America, giving talks, and afterward selling books. And thus far, most of my sales, a whopping 70-80% to of them, have been conducted using my little square wireless card reader. This is hardware that I acquired for somewhere in the neighborhood of $40, and the service, Square, which is a bit like PayPal or Venmo, but focused more on point-of-sale systems than app-based transfers, is free to sign up for, though they, like most other payment processors of this kind, charge a percentage, a fee, for each 
sale that they conduct through these devices. A lot of companies offer similar interfaces, and they've become ubiquitous enough that it's almost quaint, especially amongst newer, younger businesses, to see old-school credit card systems, clunky and black or dark gray, hugging rolls of receipt paper, lacking the touchscreen and clean, soft lines of the digital interfaces that these new systems offer. Such technologies are unto themselves pretty interesting, but what I want to talk about today is not point-of-sale systems and it's not busking, but instead it's how we support the creation of work of any kind, and how these methods of getting resources to those who are making things are changing, and what that means for those whose work relies on such systems. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. There is often a conflict between the production of something and sustaining the production of that thing. Anyone who's ever made anything is at least passingly familiar with this friction. The tension between wanting to make a thing that you think is valuable, that you think is important, that feels right according to your standards for it, and the desire to ensure that you can get it out into the world, can perpetuate its existence can perhaps disseminate it in such a way that will allow you to then continue to produce other things as a consequence. This podcast, for instance, was created with the intention of being able to show connections between things that are happening in the news and the historical, economic, philosophical, humanistic, ideological, and other contexts for those current event happenings. This being something that I think is important, I've tried a few methods of making sure that I can, first, pay for the infrastructure required to keep the show afloat and available, second, take my time away from other projects which I also think are valuable, and third, continue to spend that infrastructural money and that time to keep producing this show into the future. All of which means, typically, at least, being able to earn money to pay those bills, to pay my bills, because otherwise I would likely need to spend more time on other things that allow me to pay my bills just to subsist, just to operate within this version of capitalism that we have here in the United States and in some form or another worldwide, with very few exceptions. Now, this isn't a call to action, by the way. I've got that sort of thing between the intro and the main body of the show and during the outro. But I have those calls to action to become a patron, to leave reviews, to attend a tour event or buy a book, because content of any kind and almost always requires some kind of funding mechanism to exist and or persist. Yes, there are cases where people who are independently wealthy can fund work just because, without needing to earn anything from it. They've already got the requisite resources to pay the bills and pay for the creator's time, and that is that. And there are cases where creators have managed to winnow the costs of producing their work down to a degree that they can afford to do it just for fun, just because they want to, either producing as a hobby or completely self-funding their work, something I often refer to as becoming one's own Medici, the Medici being a group of wealthy benefactors, amongst many other things, back during the European Renaissance and beyond. A great deal of art in all mediums that exists from that time exists because of the Medici family and other benefactors like them. They were patrons of the arts, and that art, that content, to use today's vernacular, exists because they paid the bills and paid for the artist's time and materials. 
There are still Medici-like people and entities in the world today, but they are few and far between, and in some cases require certain attributes in their artists, certain slants, ideologically or otherwise, to the work produced, or only have finite dollars to spread around the world, which means their attentions are highly sought after, and they can often, therefore, if they so choose, have influence over the shape of the work that comes out the other end, even if only in a very subtle fashion. Most funding models, for most creations though, rely on turning our work into either a service or a product, in packaging it up so that our audience can consume it, and then giving them ways to contribute to the continued creation of that or future work. And this is true whether we're talking about a single individual, like myself producing news analysis podcasts, or a massive news entity like The Guardian or The New York Times, or a science textbook writer, or an Instagram influencer, or an app developer, or an adult film star. Within the economic model that straddles the world, again with very few exceptions, work of any kind requires resources to create and perpetuate. And the conflict between the creation of the work and the funding that enables that work to exist can be immensely consequential. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the Washington Post, and it's entitled Tumblr's Nudity Ban Removes One of the Last Major Refuges for Pornography on Social Media. This piece is just one of many that has been written about a recent surprise announcement from the microblogging platform, Tumblr. For those who are not familiar with Tumblr, it's an interesting remnant of the post.com bubble crash of the early 2000s. It was founded in 2007, the age of Flickr and other such platforms, an age where it was the height of naming sophistication to remove random vowels from your company's name so you could snag the .com domain for your brand on the cheap. This platform was one of the big players in the social media world back then, and was predicated on the concept of websites that were called tumble logs, which were like blogs but shorter form, and often more stream of consciousness and focused on media, like photos and drawings and videos and GIFs, rather than longer form essays, as was most common for the world of blogging back then. And fun fact, if you, like me, use the Overcast app to listen to podcasts, that app was created and is maintained by Marco Arment, the former CTO, Chief Technology Officer, of Tumblr, though he left the company back in 2010 to work on a bookmarking service called Instapaper. In any case, Tumblr flourished as kind of a weird pseudo-Instagram in an age before Instagram, and developed a hearty and dedicated community as a consequence. Folks with niche tastes in pop culture and art in particular seemed to just love the service as it gave them a place to congregate and interact and share their passions. And it wasn't as obtrusive as subsequent networks like Facebook. It was weird and it stayed weird and it never heavy-handedly tried to monetize their audience in the way most other social networks had at that point, which may not have been the best choice from some perspectives. In terms of money, at least, it probably was not the smartest of moves, as Tumblr was acquired by Yahoo for $1.1 billion in mid-2013, and in 2016, Yahoo wrote down $712 million of Tumblr's value, meaning they decided to officially devalue the company for tax purposes, demonstrating that it had been a bad investment, and wanting to recoup at least something from that acquisition disaster. 
In 2017, Verizon acquired Yahoo, and through it, Tumblr. Verizon has a subsidiary company called Oath, under which it houses brands it owns like AOL, Engadget, HuffPost, formerly called The Huffington Post, TechCrunch, MapQuest, and until recently Flickr, which was sold by Oath to SmugMug in 2018. And Tumblr joined those ranks when this purchase went through. This piece in the post is about something that happened this year, at the end of 2018, when Tumblr announced that they would be removing pornography from their service, effective on December 17, 2018. This is news because in addition to all the other subcultures that have carved their homes into the structure of Tumblr over the years, the porn world, in all its many permutations, shapes, and sizes, has done the same, and more than a little enthusiastically. And this is true for the vanilla stuff that you may once have found in magazines on bookstore shelves, but it's also very true of work that has typically been a lot more niche and less accepted by the mainstream. The truly hardcore pushing the limits stuff, the ultra-specific fetishes, the work for which there is seemingly no market except for an audience of maybe just a few dozen people scattered around the planet, all of it is on Tumblr. Tumblr's community guidelines allowed this kind of intellectual and sexual evolution to occur from its inception. And as a consequence, a lot of people who are heavily invested in these spaces see it as their home base, their orientation point for what they do elsewhere, online and offline. But this announcement poured cold water on all of that. We do not know for absolute certain why this decision was made or what the consequences might be. But the timing is a little interesting. On November 20th, 2018, it was reported that Tumblr's app had been removed from Apple's iOS app store and had been gone for several days. The reason given for the removal was that child pornography had been found on the site, and that was against Apple's policies, not to mention the law. Tumblr's management blamed an industry database for the issue. There's a database that many social networks use that allows them to compare every image uploaded to their site against illegal images like child pornography, which then allows them to prevent that content from being shared in the first place, while also potentially allowing them to flag accounts that attempt to post it. This database apparently failed them in this instance, but the official line here leaves out the fact that this is not the first time Tumblr has been called to account for the content on their network. Yes, in this case, it was child porn, which is illegal, and something we've got a vast infrastructure of laws in place to try to keep from being disseminated. But there are other types of content on Tumblr as well, about which the law is a lot less clear. Porn that portrays sexual violence and rape, for instance, is legal and is a central component of various fetishes held by those on the fantasy victim and the fantasy victimizer side of that equation. There's also more conventional-seeming pornographic content that portrays young women and men as being very young. So it's not technically illegal, as the performers are of legal age, over 18, but they go very far out of their way to make it seem like they are not which allows them to toe the legal line while still presenting essentially the same content they would if they were on the wrong side of that line. There are valid opinions I think a person can hold on these issues, on any content that is legal in the sense that the people involved are not being coerced, are not actually being forced or abused, are engaging in whatever they're engaging in because they want to. You could argue, for instance, that even if the performers in these videos are just performers or are enjoying what they're doing, 
that it's still harmful content because it promotes violence against women or violence against men or sex with very young people who it is implied but never concretely claimed because of the laws involved are underage, you could argue that real or not, these portrayals are harmful to the way that we engage with each other and that it just fans the flames of negative behavior in people who may then think it's okay, it's normal, to go out into the world and sexually assault someone or have sex with a minor, or one of the many other things that are technically legal to portray on screen, but definitely not legal to do in real life. It's possible to stretch this same argument further, beyond the world of adult content, too. There's a rich subculture, on Tumblr, for instance, that encourages people, primarily but not exclusively young women, to become anorexic or bulimic. There are how-to guides places where Tumblr authors can post photos and videos demonstrating how deathly skinny they've become by starving themselves, and other content that by some standards could be considered quite harmful. It's content that is not technically illegal, but which can nonetheless cause damage, at least theoretically. The flip side to that broader argument is that free speech is important because there is no reliable, unbiased way to determine what is inherently good and what is inherently bad. Arguably, inherently good and inherently bad don't even exist, depending on how you look at it. If you would have asked someone in the 1950s in the United States if we should allow interracial couples to be portrayed on television, they would have laughed in your face. That was not okay by most people's standards. The same was true of gay couples, of polytriads and constellations, of young people embracing their sexualities, whatever those sexualities might have looked like of anything beyond the relatively strict, conservative, predominantly Christian-leaning values that were the only publicly suitable standards of the era. All of which is to say it's impossible to filter for dangerous content without succumbing to our own contemporary, demographically influenced biases about what's dangerous and what is simply unfamiliar or uncomfortable to us because of our specific individual standards. To some people, exposed female nipples are abhorrent, are filthy, and should absolutely be covered up. To others, they're just nipples. Women's nipples actually play a frontline role in this particular drama, as Tumblr's new policies, in which they declare that all adult content would be deleted, and that no new adult content could be posted after December 17th, 2018, indicate that, among other things, images and videos depicting sex acts, real-life human genitalia, and, quote, female presenting nipples, end quote, would be banned, henceforth, from the Tumblr platform. Interestingly, there are exceptions in this new policy for illustrations or art that depict nudity, to nudity that is related to political or newsworthy speech, and to female presenting nipples that are shown in relation to things like childbirth, breastfeeding, mastectomies, and gender reassignment surgeries. In other words, Tumblr has chosen to take the no-profane nudity stance, which, as history has shown, is all but impossible to cleanly enforce. What is and what is not porn, or even profane, more broadly, varies from person to person. And in a lot of cases, when it comes to creating law or policy around such a fuzzy standard, it's the most ideologically conservative, most heteronormative and status quo opinions that determine what is okay and what is not. The platform of inclusiveness has, potentially as a consequence of that inclusiveness, become substantially less inclusive. The response to this change in tone has been mostly sad and horrified. 
There have been a few pieces written about how this is a win for women, or a win for all right-minded enemies of child porn. But those sorts of pieces often claim it's kind of a win for anti-debauchery as well, which indicates that the priority here is probably less about the child porn and more about using child porn as an inroad for attacking all other porn-related concerns. But most responses have been more along the lines of what was published in the New York Times under the headline, The Problem with Banning Pornography on Tumblr, and in The Week, entitled The Sad Decline of Tumblr. And there have been a large number of more practical pieces published about this changeover, along the lines of the one published in The Verge with the headline, How to Back Up Your Tumblr Before the Porn Ban, and another in Fast Company entitled The Frantic Unprecedented Race to Save 700,000 Not Safe for Work Tumblers for Posterity. For what it's worth, I personally disagree with Tumblr's decision here, or rather Verizon's decision on behalf of Tumblr, but I also get it. I understand why they might want to polish up this aging, value-degraded asset that they have just sitting there on their shelf. Such a move allows them to consider selling it for parts, or changing it into something new, blending it with another service, or creating a new media platform out of the structure that's already there. After all, even if 22 to 25% of the network, by some estimates, is just porn content, with another maybe 20% of their Tumblr sites, on top of the pure porn sites, thought to include some kind of pornographic content mixed in with other sorts of content, that still leaves a substantial social media footprint to play with. They're one of the top 100 websites overall in the world, and as of the day I'm recording this, they are the 65th most visited website in the world. That is a massive foundation to build upon. None of which makes this decision any easier for adult content creators, for people who are part of subcultures that include adult or adult-like content, and for people who feel burned by a platform that had come to seem like home to them. But all this ties back to what I talked about at the beginning of this episode, the making of money, and how the making of money is inextricably intertwined almost always with the content creation process. And we can see that connection here from two completely different angles. On one side, we have the corporation needing to sustain itself economically so it can pay the 400 or so people who currently work for Tumblr and higher up to sustain the thousands of people who work at various levels within Verizon. For them, this is a legit economic choice that they believe will help them sustain the work they do and which they think is important according to metrics that they care about. If it requires that they cut loose longtime fans and users, well, that's just the nature of the business. Ensuring they can keep doing the work that they do requires periodic sacrifices of that kind. On the other side, we have content creators who have perched their work upon this network, which is now in some ways being pulled out from under them. This is especially true of some sex workers and other people working in the adult industry, some of whom make this work for the love of the medium, but many of whom do this kind of work because it allows them to continue to pay the bills. No different than me and my work, or you and yours, except in terms of how sexually titillating that work happens to be to some people. Losing this source of audience and attention, of advertising and self-promotion, means that they may lose work, lose clients, may not be able to stay in touch with their fans, their customers, which means, in turn, they may not be able to continue to produce their work, to generate their content, to take the time to do these sorts of things, because the rent must be paid and groceries must be purchased. And if this revenue stream dries up or contracts substantially, they will almost certainly have to apply their time and energy to other things. They'll have to do other work. 
and potentially work that is less fulfilling to them and those on the other side of the production-consumption relationship. It's possible, then, to look at this sort of move and understand both sides without necessarily agreeing with both or either. It's also possible to recognize how the broader problem of funding content, of creating good work, creative work and otherwise, is the root of a lot of issues within many industries today. Not just within the world of adult entertainment and subculture innovation and creativity, but also when it comes to things like journalism, science, education, mainstream film and television, book publishing, podcasting, and just about every other possible field in which what's being created and sold is not a commodity, like a can of soup or a bicycle. I want to take this discussion in one more direction that may not be immediately obviously connected to these other two points about adult content bans and funding models for creative work being complicated, but which I would argue is very much connected to them. And I would further argue that recognizing this connection is important because if we don't, it's possible to behave in ways that are antagonistic to how we want things to be without even realizing that we are doing so. There's a term that's only recently hit the common media world of vernacular, and that term is deplatforming. Deplatforming refers to pulling the platform out from under someone or some organization that presumably has done something that warrants removing them from said platform. Alex Jones, for instance, who's infamous for spreading brazen conspiracy theories and lies, including frantic claims that school shootings, like the one at Sandy Hook Elementary School in 2012, in which a 20-year-old man shot and killed 20 children between the ages of 6 and 7 years old, alongside six adult staff members of the school, his own mother, and then himself, after all the damage was done, Jones claimed that this was a false flag operation. That all the parents who cried when their children were killed, all the police who responded to the event, everyone involved, they're just actors. Pretending that they had kids, pretending that those kids were murdered, pretending because that would give the government, which at the time was led by Barack Obama, the excuse that they needed to come take away everyone's guns. Now, not all conspiracy theories are untrue. Watergate and similar scandals remind us that this is the case. But although it's important to keep an open mind about such things, as it's been said, it's also important to not keep our minds so open that our brains fall out. The sheer abundance of evidence that the shooting happened, and the complete and absolute lack of evidence that it didn't, would make this particular conspiracy theory hilarious if it wasn't so monstrous. As a consequence of Jones's claims, the parents of the Sandy Hook school shooting victims have been harassed by his viewers and listeners, some to the point that they've been chased out of their homes by conspiracy theorists who see them as government operatives, trying to take all their guns away, leaving threatening notes and messages, hiding in their bushes, taking photos, going through their trash. It's abusive, dangerous behavior, and the consequences of a person like Jones having a platform, a megaphone, that he can shout through at his audience of credulous people who believe that they're doing good things but who are, in fact, a huge part of a growing problem, doing abhorrent things out of ignorance and thoughtlessness because they trust this man and trust him when he says that everyone else, all other sources of news and information but him, are the ones that are untrustworthy. The deplatforming of Alex Jones, then, Pulling him off Twitter and YouTube, banning him and his work from Facebook and Spotify, pulling his apps from the Apple iOS store. It can reduce the range of his megaphone. It doesn't stop him from shouting nonsense into the ether, but it does keep him from reaching new people as easily. 
and makes it less convenient for those who are already diehards from being exposed to more of his poison. There was another recent high-profile deplatforming, this time of alt-right figurehead Milo Yiannopoulos, who's perhaps most famous for being flamboyant and intentionally offensive, while also towing most aspects of the Trumpian worldview line, and catering to his audience of not exclusively, but primarily, white supremacist-leaning men. Yiannopoulos was all over the news a few years ago, but after first having his verified checkmark removed from his profile and then being outright banned from Twitter for abusive, threatening, dangerous behavior, particularly toward black women, but also anyone who did not fit within his idealized alt-right white male-centric ideology, he was also banned from other networks and payment processors, including, most recently, Patreon. To be honest, Yiannopoulos' decline gave me a small jolt of schadenfreude. I have no idea who he is or what he is like as a person, as an individual, but as a public personality, he's just as toxic in many ways as Alex Jones, if perhaps not as famous and successful. I felt the same about Jones and his deplatforming because, again, by the standards of fact-based reporting and establishing truth and having a grasp of reality and not tormenting victims of mass shootings, he's a horrible person. He's the antithesis of skeptical thought and a rational humanistic worldview. So his decline, even if only on some platforms, felt very good to me. And it still does, frankly. But just like with porn and Tumblr... I think it's possible to rationally and thoughtfully be of two minds on this particular matter. Because although I do not think we should celebrate demagogues like Jones and Yiannopoulos, and although I do think it's nice when horrible people suffer consequences for their actions, this is another situation in which primarily corporations, entities with monetary concerns that often put their interests beyond mere human morality, are being forced to make decisions about what is correct and good and okay, and what is not. They are, in other words, becoming arbiters of correct and ethical speech and thinking, and are able to economically starve, in practice at least, if not literally, those who defy those standards. Standards that were defined by a committee, that committee acting in accordance with what is best for their shareholders, rather than what is best by some larger, more thoughtful, and perhaps abstract philosophical metric. While I am glad, then, that Jones has less reach and fewer ways to fund his contagious idiocy, I am concerned that the same entities that leveled that punishment could, at some point, come after someone who I think is doing amazing and beneficial work. They might even come after me, perhaps, if I say the wrong thing someday, or have something that I say taken out of context. That misunderstanding or miscontextualization spread as fact by people and communities that are incentivized in some ways to prefer scandal and outrage over nuance and context could knock me off these platforms as well. Alongside that concern, just as with sexual and relationship norms, who's to say what might be construed as wrong or harmful today, but which might at some point in the future become normal and even morally correct? What way of thinking, in other words, is like interracial relationships. What way of thinking might seem wrong to most people of the general population now, but in 50 years will be the obvious, correct, moral thing? And which of these future, obvious and correct moral things that are today held by only an outcast weirdo few would be punishable if spoken aloud by today's arbiters of truth and moral rightness? 
what unpopular opinions might be cut away in their infancy, unable to grow up and flourish and perhaps better serve us all, making the world a better place because these networks, these platforms controlled by interests that are almost entirely economic, make a decision that seems generally correct to most people contemporarily, but which could prove to be short-sighted by every other standard. The shifting sands of platforms, their evolution and change determined in some cases by mob-spread moral outrage and blanket legal concerns, amplify this issue. That positioning takes it from being a somewhat theoretical issue to being a livelihood issue, something that could not just starve an idea of attention, but also a person holding that idea of food and shelter. I personally think people like Yiannopoulos should not be handed a megaphone and told to go at it. We're all worse off for having people like this spreading their voices and ideas far and wide. They have the freedom of speech, certainly, but not the freedom to an audience. They do not deserve our attention and the dollars that often follow attention these days. But even holding that opinion, it's possible to be of two minds about the issue. It's possible to worry about the large-scale near-future potential consequences of allowing these sorts of issues to determine which ideas and whose livelihood lives and dies. It's still possible, in some ways, in some places, to busk for money, to scrap together change and the occasional paper note, and make a living funding your work in that way. But times change, and so do platforms. These days, buskers are using square card readers and payment processors and accepting Venmo. If one of these performers were to be deplatformed, to be disallowed from using that payment processor, as has been the case for many people and business entities like those doing sex work and those working in the burgeoning cannabis field here in the United States, we create a situation in which the only solutions are increasingly illegal ones. Or again, self-censorship, doing less good work or no work at all because we are unable to make a buck from the things that we want to do, the things that we're good at, the things we create for which there is an audience, but an audience that no longer has any way to economically support us. They have no cash in their pockets because of the steady march of technological innovation and social norms, and they have no way to get the money from their bank accounts into ours because we played the wrong songs, performed the wrong plays, or said the wrong things according to the standards of those who control the flow of modern resources and the digital sidewalks upon which we stand. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. This is a really excellent book, particularly for the topic of this podcast episode and a lot of other things that I've been discussing recently. The book is essentially about what we know about neuroscience and the way our brains operate and how that feeds into the polarization within ideologies, within politics, within religion and things of that nature. So if you've ever been curious about some of the biological variables that influence the way that we think and the thought structure that underpins whether we are more progressive or liberal or whether we are more conservative and what type of conservative and what different senses of morality and different perceptions of the world feed into those mental frameworks, those heuristics that we use to make decisions, this is a really excellent book to read. And thankfully, on top of that, it also presents some 
ideas about how we can bypass each other's reflexive responses to certain ideas and conversations that we might have so that we can engage with each other intellectually and with a, I mean, as clean a slate as we can possibly have when discussing certain ideas rather than entering into conversations about heated topics for which we have pre-written answers that were handed to us by somebody else and therefore we cannot cleanly engage with those ideas because we're already viewing them through a heavily distorted lens ahead of time. If any of that sounds interesting to you, I highly recommend picking up a copy of The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. While there, you might consider signing up for my usually twice-monthly newsletter as well, which will give updates on my projects and send out periodic essays as well. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsnotethings.com. You can find out more about the tour that I'm currently on around North America at becomingtour.com. And you can find me on pretty much all the social networks. I'm at Colin is my name on most of them and just Colin Wright on Facebook. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.